I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Online podcast. Welcome back to the Line Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander. Today's gorgeous episode was with the one and only legendary Mr. Paul Check. Paul is a mentor to many. He's the founder of the Check Institute. He is a best-selling author. He is a tremendously insightful human being that has had uh, one of the most interesting lives of most anybody that I've come across. And we dig into some of those bits in this conversation, ranging from religion to wellness to movement to all sorts of really interesting wormholes. So hope you guys devour this conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in to the website, alignpodcast.com, A-L-I-G-N podcast.com. On there, people can start the five-day movement challenge, absolutely free, absolutely helpful uh, in your movement life. Uh, so it's broken down five simple fundamental videos that everybody ought to have in their daily situation. And it's all there for you at alignpodcast.com. Thanks so much to Four Sigmatic for supporting this podcast. They are a company that I've been utilizing for the last couple of years. And they create the highest quality that I've come across um, mushroom blends in the forms of teas and chocolates and protein powders and all sorts of good stuff. So you can jump over to foursigmatic.com slash align and get yourself 15% off on your purchase. Recommend grabbing some reishi mushrooms for uh, before you go to bed. Nice for down regulation, relaxation, maybe cordyceps for waking up before working out. Uh, lion's mane, good for neurogenesis and making your brain work smart. Uh, so really good stuff. Highly recommend them. 15% off forcingmatic.com slash align. Um, I think we're, we're really good. I appreciate y'all leaving reviews on the iTunes. That's how the algorithmic gods are familiar with what the hell is happening on this program. So appreciate y'all doing that and people that have grabbed the Align Method online program. That's tremendous. I really appreciate your feedback and comments, and um, it's just awesome to see that. You can start a seven-day free trial with that. So go to alignpodcast.com slash method. Seven-day free trial. And that's it. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here we go. Back to it with Paul Check. Align Podcast. What's your perspective on Christianity? And it's it's... It's meaning and metaphoric meaning, and you're probably familiar with like the Dead Sea Scrolls. And of course, yeah. Um, you know, my perspective on Christianity is the same as it is in all the major religions because they all have the same functions. You know, Jung said all religious systems are designed to protect you from the direct experience of God. What he what he was saying is is that. To have a direct experience of God requires complete and utter annihilation of the ego, which is essentially death, death to the perceptible self. So all religious systems are actually uh, thought forms that have codes of conducts, right and wrongs, proprietaries and improprietaries, all of which, if you look on that map right there, are emergent of every previous 
religious ideology or philosophy in existence. So the first one that we worshipped, according to record, was trees. Then we believed God was the sex organs, then the serpent, then fire, then the sun. Then you start getting down to things like the Abrahamic religions and the prophets. But, you know, you can find Christianity on there and those color codes tell you which components of the previous religious belief systems actually made it into each of the religions. So that's the work of Major General Forlong, which I've studied. And so the uh, point that I'm getting to here is that religions are really ultimately at their base a collection of mythologies. And some of those mythologies are um, factual, i.e. witnessing things like um, changes in the sky at night, and star formations and changes in planetary activity such as Venus or Saturn or the various planets that can be seen from Earth um, with your eyes. And, you know, there's great research through the electric universe showing that the, the sky was much, much more wild and tumultuous and there was all sorts of, you know, activity on earth such as asteroids and massive electrical storms and things that you know scared the hell right out of people and thus they named them gods and zeus of course is the god of lightning and so but the deeper element of that from a psychological perspective is, is that you have to create a field of resistance in order to grow and develop the powers of the mind and all religions provide you with do's and don'ts and a way of relating that ultimately pit you against things that are natural to human beings such as your sex urge your urge for artistic expression your dietary uh, beliefs your uh, ceremonial beliefs or or you know non-beliefs really like if you just take the ten commandments there's a set of commandments of what you should and should not do thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife. Well, what man with any testosterone in him at all can look out the window of his home or his hut back then and see another beautiful woman and not want to be sexually intimate with her because it's woven right into our genes. Um, So what you see looking at those things without a comprehensive expose is that they're all actually things that force us into a polarized relationship which is what consciousness requires. If you don't have polarity, you can't be conscious of something. That's just a <laughs> fact. Um, you know, as I often say to people, if, if you just numb the, eye, the muscles of the eye, you can't see anything. You, your eye has, is in constant movement, which are called saccades. And so the eye is actually constantly moving, and that movement is what allows us to pick up information and perceive it. But if the eye stops moving, you'll go blind. Hmm. So... This is why I quote Edinger's definition of consciousness. In paraphrase, consciousness is a psychic substance produced not blindly, but in living awareness of opposites. So it is religions in our most recent history, if you go behind religions and you get to shamanism, that set up the polarity of right and wrong, should and shouldn't do, don't do, um, good and bad, uh, or good and evil, and those are the things that ultimately lead us into an awareness of, of the choices that we're making. And those are the things that give us these ideas of gods or powers that, that are beyond our control. 
and that sets up a structure of consciousness, like a strata of consciousness. And so at the bottom of that structure, you have the magic level. There's actually a lower level than that called the archaic. But the magic level then evolves to the mythic level, and the mythic level evolves to the mental level, but within the mental level, there's, you know, if you look at Ken Wilber's work, there's the fundamentalist level, which is the traditional level. Then there's the modern level, which is uh, people that realize that the limitations of their own religion are actually stopping them from living well, feeling good, healing, or growing, or they're, they're too strangling for them. So then they go to the modern level, which is an integration of religious beliefs from around the world, such as Baha'i is a, is a, is a uh, practice or a faith or a religion that fits perfectly into the modern level of consciousness. Then the postmodern level is the level at which we, we uh, actually reach the level of consciousness to be able to handle dealing with paradoxes. So if God loves you, then why would God burn you in hell? Well, until you figure that out, you're always going to be trapped in the throes of somebody's idea structure, which is going to produce pain for you. And that pain is exactly what it turns out to be that's necessary to provoke you to go deeper into yourself and deeper into an analysis of your own life into learning to use your own mind effectively. But the key words are using your own mind instead of being programmed by somebody else's belief system. So the postmodern level means that we've actually got enough conscious power to juxtapose shoulds and shouldn'ts, rights and wrongs, do's and don'ts, must, must not, um, you know, emptiness, no thing and something, right? So there's a tricky one. How do you get something from nothing? Well, most people can't wrap their heads around that, so they just stop thinking about it, <laughs> right? But the problem is, is that there is no such thing as nothing, and the real issue is that no, nothing is no thing, right? Empty space isn't a thing, per se, but there's things in it. So instead of saying, how do I get something from nothing? You say, how does everything emerge from no thing? Or how does the subtle become the tangible? Or as Einstein said, the field is the sole governing agency of the particle. Well, the field is a place of action, but it's not necessarily a thing. But within that place of action, call it the universe, things or objects emerge. And so the postmodern level, to finish my ladder for you, it, it is where we actually have to deal with the paradoxes of mind. And, and the intellectual program mind has a really hard time with those paradoxes because you can't really answer those things with logical thought. You're forced into the unrational, which means you have to now reach into the other side of your conscious self. Most people up to that point are dealing only with logic and rationale. If it can't be weighed, measured, or someone else hasn't proven it, you can't really believe in it. But there's a problem with that because love is unrational and you can't weigh it or measure it. And we all know it's essential for not only life, but relationships and even survival when you look at studies on children. And so if you can make it past that uh, postmodern stage and, and, the, and, and the real uh, kind of hang up there is called nihilism because people that reach that stage but don't have the power or the uh, support or the mentorship to get past it, get to the point where everything goes flat for them and they 
become nihilistic. They're, they can't find any reason to live because when you start weighing <clears throat> atoms against emptiness, you get to zero. When you start weighing yes against no, you get checkmate. So they, get, they can get to the checkmate stage, but they can't get past it. So they lose any sense of interest. Nothing's important to them anymore. Why bother is, is sort of the, the, the tagline. Well, why fucking bother? Everything cancels everything out. And you get <clears throat> situations, which is well supported by just evidence. You, you take a simple question like, are cold showers good for you? And start researching that on Google or on medical sites. And you'll find that on both sides of the fence, there's many experts with equal qualifications that are diametrically opposed. Some say no one should take cold showers. Some say everyone should take cold showers. And then there's everything in between. So the average person that doesn't have the ability to get beyond postmodern is stuck because you'll find that anything, what is gravity, what is energy, you know, what is love, uh, do, do, we, do we exist past physical death? The, the, way, the scales will be weighted on both sides. And so if you can't make up your own mind and, and that, I tell my students that level of, of consciousness is there because that forces you to go into yourself. If you keep on looking for other people's opinions, you're still stuck in the throes of uh, the Abrahamic religions, which create a father figure for you and keep you in the child position. But then if you start looking at the Eastern religions, such as Taoism, Buddhism, and and any of the Eastern religions, really, they're heavily based around meditation and introspection and going inside yourself. And they tell you all the answers are inside of you. Stop reading books and looking around. But once you grow past that and you learn to think for yourself and access the creative energies of the universe, then you become a co-creator of the universe. And from that point, you enter into the integral level of consciousness, which only about 2% of the world population ever makes it to, according to Ken Wilber's research. And then you actually are in a unique position because you have lived through each of those structure stages of consciousness. Now, when you're walking around or you're at a party or you're in a locker room, within seconds of talking to anyone or seeing you know, the values they express through the clothes they wear, the cars they drive, the foods they eat, where they invest their money, what's important to them. You can see yourself at each stage in that journey so you can have empathy and compassion for them and be an effective leader for them because you've already lived through all of that. But ultimately, that's what it takes to create freedom. You're not free until you reach at least the integral stage because what, even though you might think you're making decisions for yourself, you're actually just running on programs that have been programmed into you since your inception. Do you have a sense of at what point in the evolutionary ladder shame of your own biology started to become baked into the system? <laughs> yeah, I've got a pretty good sense of that. <laughs> good. I thought, you, I thought you'd, you'd have thought about it. <laughs> yeah. I thought we were asking questions for your book. These are deep questions, man. I mean, I love this shit. That's but what I did. the book's about. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, shame, in my research, shame really goes back to, um, now, and, I, and I haven't looked deeply enough for this in, say, Buddhism or Taoism or Shinto or Egyptian philosophy. But wherever there's a, 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 some kind of a God figure, leader figure, 
a king, uh, an emperor um, that sets rules, then shame is usually relating to the awareness that I did something that I shouldn't have done. For example, if nobody ever told you as a young man that playing with your own uh, genitals and giving yourself ejaculations was a bad thing, then you'd be just like a, a you know a bonobo or a chimp or whatever, and you and you'd probably be a hell of a lot happier. <laughs> yeah, because they, like shame is not a concept because nobody's ever given them the um, the belief that it is bad to do. So typically when you start seeing um, the imposition of rights and wrongs, which technically goes back to mythology, because one of the key functions of mythology is proprietaries and improprietaries. What is, what is um, congruent with our tribe's belief systems, what's incongruent, and what is congruent with our tribe's belief systems relative to the neighboring tribes, because if we don't understand that, then wars and death are, are inevitable. So I think that the idea of shame is really something that emerges with improprietaries, proprietaries and improprietaries, but it, from my experience of working with thousands of patients with all sorts of health challenges and diseases, when I do my investigations into their developmental psyche and, and attachment syndromes and the big, what I call the big eight archetypes, which are the Imago Dei, beliefs about God, their history of experience with their mother, their father, their experience as a child, the victim archetype, the saboteur archetype, the prostitute archetype, and the eternal child archetype, someone that doesn't want to grow up. Um, inevitably, I find most consistently that issues of shame hover directly around their first exposures to Sunday school or temples, such as Jewish temples, where they were told what they must not do and must do, and that triggers off competition between the urge of the soul, the urge of the body, right? The body has an urge for sex, for example, and the code of conduct. And so shame, as I see it, is a, pri is a byproduct of enculturation, if you look at, you know, for example, Robert A. Johnson's work on the shadow, he makes it very clear that the shadow emerged as a product of enculturation. So as far back as we started living in groups and had to have codes of conduct to survive together, um, that's when the shadow happened because then we had to kind of start reining in our, um, shall we say, unconscious tendencies to do whatever it might be from eating whatever you can get your hands on to having sex with whoever you wanted to to taking whatever you want i mean you know a chimpanzee uh doesn't really well they do know of each other's territories but they will raid each other's territories but i doubt they have shame over it yeah um but it's interesting because many people that i know and from my own experience, we had dogs on our farm. They were trained sheep herding dogs. So we, I had a, my parents, you know, ran a big sheep farm. Um, dogs will feel shame. You know, they know when they're eating food they're not supposed to be eating. But again, what what is it's it? A product of people inflicting that on them. It is, but you see, it's their awareness of a right or a wrong. Yeah. But I don't think, I don't think. Um, you know, one time I was sitting and meditating in my front yard at home 
and out of the corner of my eye, I was on a, we have a round bench around a nice big tree, you know, quite a big tree. And all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I saw a flash of movement, and I turned my head right as a big hawk was nosediving at full speed through the canopy of the tree, and it grabbed two uh, baby robins right out of the robin's nest and then landed literally from me to that bookshelf away five feet away from me and proceeded to eat them right in front of me. And it's the mother was absolutely in crisis. She was just freaking out. And I, my, my first reaction was anger toward the hawk because I felt her pain and I saw these two little babies just getting their heads ripped off and eaten like sushi. But then I realized that's the, how the hawk lives. This is his normal hunting ground. I mean, this is how he feeds himself. And, and look what we humans do, killing every damn thing to make another pay parking lot, for God's sakes, let alone feeding yourself. So the point I'm making is that there wasn't an ounce of shame in that hawk's being. He was just eating breakfast and... Uh, now, if you could somehow program that hawk with some sort of a belief system about, you know, who to eat and when to eat and when not to eat, it would only take till he was hungry enough not to follow the rules, and then he would right. be in shame. Right. <laughs> with the the robin going through that that traumatic, cathartic response, there, I'm sure you're familiar with Peter Levine, Awakening the Tiger. Yes, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, he... he uh, he used to eat at the same restaurant I did for years. My office was on 609 South Vulcan, and we would both eat at Vigalucci's restaurant for lunch, and, and that was my, my kitchen because I used to pay them about 1800 bucks a month, and I was the guy that got them to start bringing in free-range organic meats and, and organic foods, and I said, I'll pay you this much money if you'll just have it on hand for me. <laughs> and Peter Levine used to come eat lunch, and so sometimes we would chat there, and, and I'm familiar with his work, and he's from Encinitas as well. Yeah. So in that, he has a really beautiful description of you know going through that, just the whole traumatic ladder, use that same language. And when animals go through that immobilized response, which the robin didn't maybe go that far, but oftentimes you'll see a creature, say, say a bird flies into your window and, and it smacks and they, they just go into this immobilized state yeah. or, you know, a lion's attacking a zebra, whatever they'll shut down. Mm -hmm. And then, but internally he describes it like they're internally, they're, you know, moving hundred miles an hour, externally moving zero. Mm -hmm. And then in order to come back, they need to actually be able to purge that internalized stress out through their, mm -hmm. their body. But the that's shaking. another, yeah, but that's another, there's another like layer of, of shame in there with humans because we don't really give ourselves from my, from what I can see the spaciousness to, to live out that internalized stress because it's not socially acceptable. You know, mm -hmm. so if you were to have some purgative, tremorous, convulsive response or your face gets a little funny or, you know, any of those things mm -hmm. in a social situation, it's like, Oh, that's a shameful thing because all of a sudden you're almost like expressing like this more honest, expression of your biology but there's yeah. there's shame there so you pack it back in you zip up your tie and you keep on marching yeah, through the world that, that's right back to enculturation and that's the shadow element right we are protecting ourselves so that we fit into the the, the consensus norm really to use a big umbrella anything that's out of the consensus norm is likely to generate shame in an enculturated person because we have to repress 
anything that doesn't fit into that structure or we could end up you know getting disowned by our parents or kicked out of a church or yeah. off of a team or out of a school or out of a business a or tribe. out of a church or any any perceived tribe at any level yeah uh so and and that's where you know all that starts with is tribal societies because <laughs> you know you, you you can't go back far enough to say there was no such thing as a tribal society there's always been tribes we had to have tribal uh societies to survive in nature and that's very well known from research we you can't survive in nature by yourself pretty much not yeah. not not the kind of nature that you see on reality tv shows like you know guys out hunting in the wild but people forget there's a camera following them and there's a helicopter following them and they're never going to go hungry i'm talking about you know raw nature you know yeah so what do you think about that internalized stress manifesting itself in the form of, of fill in the blank disease well, that's what it does do. That's what I make a living addressing. Yeah. That's why I've spent my whole life studying all this stuff because you can't... The reason the medical system is absolutely, you know, a flop for anything other than acute trauma, such as, you know, car accidents or, you know, industrial accidents or, you know, where you need emergency medicine, right? They're, they're good at that. Yeah. But anything else is because they keep on actually... Um, trying to treat the symptoms as though they're the cause. But you know, if you just look at orthopedic injuries, for example, 85% of all orthopedic injuries reported to doctors and physical therapists worldwide are idiopathic, which means the patient has no idea how it got started. Well, all you got to do is study the chakra system, for example, and start asking the right questions, and you'll see... It doesn't take but two minutes for a skilled therapist that knows what they're looking for to ask the questions to hit pay dirt. For example, I can't tell you how many people I've seen with chronic pelvic girdle dysfunctions and SI joint dysfunctions that also have a lot of shame or guilt around their sex life and the way they're managing their sex life because that disrupts the flow of energy through the sexual centers and the pelvic girdle. And since... Um, you know, the body is really a flow of energy and information. Anything that blocks the integrated flow of energy and information through the body produces, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, a blockage to the natural flow of energy and information. And in Native American Indian uh, philosophy, that's called soul loss. So there's a part of themselves that they no longer consciously want to access either because the trauma is too painful to deal with or the guilt and the shame is too painful to deal with. So that energy is repressed. And so essentially their conscious mind does not enter into that part of themselves. And, and I know this from doing a, quite a lot of work with people that have entity possessions because you don't see entity possessions in people that fully inhabit their bodies. Right. You only see entity possessions in people who are carrying what I refer to as vacancies. A squatter wouldn't enter a house with a family in it. No, especially not in the United States where people have their own guns. Yeah. Right? You, know? <laughs> you know, a buddy of mine was, funny you mentioned that, a buddy of mine uh, was sound asleep in his bedroom. This is on Vancouver Island where there's a lot of guns. And um, all of a sudden he heard footsteps in his house. And then he wondered who in the hell's in my house because none of his family members anyone was supposed to be there and he just 
opened his eyes right when some guy that was coming into his house to rob him mm. walked into his bedroom. And he has a habit of keeping a 357 Magnum pistol under his pillow. Jesus. And he reached behind his head, grabbed the pistol, pointed at the guy, and he said, you better get to the door before I pull the trigger. <laughs> and the guy just sprinted out of his house. <laughs> wow. Why do you think he's... <laughs> Is that the way to live? <laughs> uh, well, I it, guess in that instance, yes. <laughs> it's just, it depends on where, what value structure you're at. Yeah. You know, Vancouver Island, you know, when I grew up there, it's a lot of hunters and a lot of, you know, guys that are very self-sufficient, but kind of live their own rules and, and kind of tippy tap, you know, think of how many people smoke pot when it was illegal or, you right. know, it's all, it's all, there you go. There's your dealing with the matrix yeah. that produces the resistance that forces you to grow your own mind and your own sense of self, or you become so enculturated that you die inside yourself. And that's really what the whole hero's journey is all about. You either go on the hero's journey, but to go on the hero's journey, you become a non-consensus reality. You become someone that's living outside of the box, a rebel or somebody who's, you know, so different than everybody else that you are guaranteed to get attacked and have to go through a lot of pain or you stay inside the box. You stay inside the organization, inside the law, inside the rules, inside, you know, the company, but you suffer the pain of knowing that the things that you're doing aren't ideal or, you know, that maybe you work for the government and you see that the way people are being treated is unfair. But if you voice your opinion, you just get shut down because now you're in a great big house and, and there's a mommy daddy structure all the way up the ladder from the local government to the state government to the dot, dot, dot. So, you know, the, the this is just another example of the matrix that is you know, however you want to say it got created, um, that would be a whole different discussion, but the reality is the matrix there. And as Arthur Young says, who, who is, you know, a genius, Arthur, Arthur Young is the inventor of the Bell helicopter. And he invested a huge amount of his money into studying consciousness and created an institute to study consciousness. And he, he's wrote several books, three at least. Uh, one of them is The Reflexive Universe, where he shows the structure stages of consciousness and um, he basically says the first thing you have to do is learn the laws of how the world or the universe works. Then you use them in your benefit. Hmm. First, you got to learn to use them. Then you learn to use them in your benefit. So what he's saying is once you really learn how the laws work, then you can see where the loopholes are. You can see how to work around them. You can see what the opportunities are that no one else sees because they're too busy bouncing off the walls of the sort of metaphorical laws. They're, you know, in other words, if you really want to make lots of money, then you don't want to get thrown in jail over a bag of pot because you weren't working with the laws. You were working against them. But if you learn how the laws work, then you can become a pot uh, distributor, but you know exactly how to do it so you don't get caught. So we call those rich people, right? Meaning once you know how the laws work, you're working above them and around them and yep. through them. Eventually you can start to manipulate the laws. 
Exactly. And, you know, you can manipulate them to the degree that you can manipulate them without setting off the alarm, which then leads to problems. Yeah. Within your own self, do you have a sense of any vacancies or mm, parts of your being that squatters could potentially attach to? Or do you feel like you're no. 100% self-actualized, lit up? No, I, I'm, I'm totally... Since I was a child, um, you know, I, I had... Uh, very scary experience as a child of my stepfather just not only beating the hell out of my mother but beating all all of us up from time to time and um there there's something inside of me that just is not afraid uh, you know when i come face to face with the dragon i will fight the dragon so my point is from even from early childhood i had a a, a strong sense of self that I felt it was it was more scary for me to not be in myself than it was to vacate myself, mm. if that makes sense. Um, in other words, to not be in myself in the presence of my stepfather when he was pissed off means there's something you might miss that could get you killed. So you had to keep your eye on that dragon full force. And, you know, I think you probably know enough about my background from just various discussions, but you know, I was a drag racer, I was a stock car racer, I was a competitive uh, kickboxer, a boxer. Um, I was a paratrooper in the 82nd Airborne Division. So none of those are things where you where you can afford not to be fully present in yourself. When you're yeah. going 100 and something miles an hour on a stock car track and guys are trying to knock you off the track, if there's one part of you that's vacant, you're probably going to end up in a wall with a ruined car or worse. You know, when you're doing advanced military exercises that are very, very intense and dangerous. You just, you have to be all there. Um, so, uh, I, I personally, um, and I do this work and I've done, I, I, I conduct and I do a lot of healing work. So I'm constantly on a daily basis, spending time in myself and, um, sort of filling the mansion with consciousness so that if there's something that's unresolved that I identify what it is and I go through any number of different techniques to clear that, to bring it up into consciousness so that I don't, and I can't afford to not be fully present because people come to me from all over the world with, you know, at very high levels of accomplishment from movie stars to the best athletes in the world to business moguls and I have to help them make very very critical decisions so if I'm not fully present in myself I run the risk of being unconscious and I can't afford to be unconscious is there any such thing as a physical imbalance a musculoskeletal imbalance that's not associated to the emotional self well hmm It, this would, you know, this gets deep into philosophy, right? This isn't something that you can objectify because the psyche is is um, not yet clearly objectified. It's still quite mysterious. Really, if you think of the mind and the body as two sides of a coin, 
This fly one. This fly is not flying. You know what it is? I got essential oils on that are, okay. I got jasmine on yeah. and another one with flowers in it. So it, it thinks that I'm a big flower. And it's if like, I was, yeah, if this was old tribal society, I'd think that you were like Christ or something. The fly is like, yeah. <laughs> like why doesn't the fly want a piece of me? Or they think I was a piece of shit. <laughs> or a piece of shit. What are the other two? Um, <laughs> you know, look, if, if the body, the physical stuff, and the mind, the real but invisible, intangible, it's very, very hard to, to measure mind. You can measure the activity of mind with an electroencephalogram or an fMRI. And this is where a lot of people get confused. They actually think they're measuring the mind. They're measuring the activity yeah. of the mind. Yeah, they've seen the byproduct, seen the exhaust fumes. Yeah, I mean, it's like if I kick a soccer ball, you can measure how far it goes and how fast it goes but you can't measure the concept that drove me to kick it. Right. You know, you don't know if I'm kicking it out of anger or if I'm kicking it out of joy or, you know, if whatever, right? So uh, we've kind of got this weird conundrum in, in science. You know, it's another story, but uh, look, at if he, I use Dr. Daniel Siegel's definition of mind, and I'm, I'm, I haven't lost track of your question. I'm just trying to find a way to answer it that is, you know, rational enough to get one's head around. The best definition I've seen that relates to human beings for mind is mind is an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. Well, right off the bat, mind is an embodied and relational process. So right there, as far as our actual tangible experience of having a mind goes, it's embodied. Therefore, your mind is your thumbnails. Uh, your mind is the hair on your face. It is your eyeballs. It is your heart. It's your intestines. It's your knees. It's your everything. And relational. And we are in a relationship with our body. And to prove this to my students, I say, okay, hold up a hand in front of your face. Now everyone tell me what you're looking at. The only answer I've ever gotten is my hand. Good. My is a possessive. So now I have to ask you, who is the person in possession of the hand? Well, the big answer is I don't know. Or they just say me. Yes, well, who is me? Right? And philosophically and, and spiritually, that's one of the most important questions that all the great teachers said to ask. Who am I? What am I? Where did I come from? These are questions that people spend their entire life meditating in caves trying to figure out. So what am I telling you right off the bat? We are in possession of a body and something inside us knows that. You could call that the spirit or the soul, but in reality, the spirit and the soul are again, two sides of the same coin. Spirit is the flow of energy and information and soul is that which perceives and experiences it. The flow of energy and information is masculine or yang, and that which perceives or experiences or feels is yin. So you can go that way too. So when you ask the question, can something happen to your body posturally without a mental component is the question, right? Mental, emotional, whatever that word means to you. I mean, it's semantics, well, I guess. Well, mental mind means, uh, and mind basically is that which deals with the flow of information. Yeah. And emotion is is energy moving. 
It's the perception of the flow of energy and information. That's what emotions are. If you didn't have emotions, you'd be like a hose with water running through it that never knew it. You understand my point? Say it again. If you did not have emotions, you'd be no different than a hose that has water running through it but doesn't know it. What does this mean? It means that the garden hose has no uh, way of perceiving what's inside of it. It doesn't know that it's a hose. It's just a physical object made of rubber that haps, happens to be hollow in the middle that we run water through. Mm. But when you put emotion through a body, we know it because we have all sorts of receptive mechanisms for perceiving the flow of energy and information within us, such as when you say I'm constipated, it, you, you're telling me that there's information there and that there's energy there and that there's a blockage to the normal flow because constipation means a reduction in flow or a, re, a reduced capacity to eliminate. If you say I have um, heartburn, you have um, an enteric nervous system and you have introceptive nerve endings that are monitoring things like, you know, the vagus nerve is monitoring the biochemistry of your body. So when you see you have heartburn, that might have an emotional component to me. But if someone says, I'm heartbroken because my dog got killed, we inherently know that th what that means because we've all had some kind of an experience where we lost something and felt something that we loved and felt the pain of that. And, and so there you see the interface between the psyche and the body, the, the invisible, intangible, but very real and the tangible physical, my heart, right? The whole science of psychoneuroimmunology is based on these uh, realities. Um, so what I'm saying is in essence, no. There's pretty much no way you can affect the body, I mean, the, the mind and the emotions without it having a correlate in the body, just like there's no way I can hand you heads of a coin without tails unless I've cut the coin in half, at which point it's no longer a coin because without those two sides working together, there's no currency there. So there's actually no currency to mind unless it's embodied. Hmm. How would there be? What do you think of the perspective of, of like William James and Darwin talked about this, lots of people talked about this, of that your physical movement is actually what invokes the emotions. And until you move yourself into that emotion, you're not able to entirely feel it. I think that's a limited viewpoint. Um, What's well, kind of like forcing one, you know, uh, bottom up as opposed it's to a not, bottom look at, up. not looking at, at, at both, like both sides yeah. of the coin. I think it goes both ways. But I wonder like the core root of emotion, you know, it feels to me almost like there's like there's this seed of a thing and then you move and then the movement is like an amplification device, almost like a speaker system. Yeah. Like you the, need the amplifier. That's a there's a there's a, a whole bunch of stuff going on there. First of all, when they say movement, what do they mean? One of the quotes that he talks about with it is, um, so if you are angry at someone, yes, 
by when you are striking the person, it is the act of striking that actually is 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 propelling the emotion, propelling the feeling, invoking it. Yeah, Whereas I think if that's you just, backwards. If you just sit in place and say, for example, like a, like an example of it would be like Botox. You know, we're getting and, well, and you. Yeah, and you shut off the ability to move the facial muscles, so you yep. don't experience those emotions. Yeah, and then they'll see, even see that in the brain, where they're not able to be able to actually yes. show that empathy to the same capacity that person that could move themselves into those yeah. those sensations. Yes. Um, now the the thing to remember though is that the mirror neurons are picking up the information, but because the body can't respond to it. We can't really say that the experience isn't there. We can only say that they cannot respond to it. In other words, if your facial muscles were paralyzed from a car accident and I smiled at you and said, hey, how are you doing? Nice to see you. You know, Maybe I was a friend of yours coming to see you in the hospital. On the inside, you could be smiling, but your body wouldn't respond. I, I can tell you, for example, having had a spinal cord injury, I wanted to be able to raise my left arm. But when my brain wanted it to do it, it just wouldn't work because there was a cord injury. So the impulse couldn't make it past the breach in the nervous system. But inside of myself, if you could see me with an astral camera, you'd see that my astral arm is raising and my mental arm is raising, but the physical arm's not raising. So do you see my point? I do. You know, uh, plus... I love William James. I mean, uh, he's a, he was a genius, but you have to also sort of look at the gestalt of the day. And it was, there's, it's a fairly materialistic period in our culture. And if you were to go to someone like Rudolf Steiner, you would get a very different answer. And if you were to go talk to a shaman, you, you know, you'd get a yet another answer. For example, the shaman could say, I can work these emotions out sitting right here, being so still you don't even know I'm moving them, but I'm... I could be on another level of reality or another dimension doing asanas and postures and working it out in the astral plane, <laughs> right? So you see, it depends who you're talking about, right? A lot of people don't know themselves beyond their body, which is why the body is so important because they don't know what astral travel is. They don't really understand how to process their emotions or they would most likely because if we're not processing our emotions, it creates discomfort inside of us. It's, um, I mean, think of it. Whenever you have emotions that aren't getting processed, what does it do to you? Certain hell doesn't create freedom. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> it changes your breathing, changes your heart rate, changes your blood pressure. Uh, changes galvanic skin response, changes pupil dilation, autonomic nervous system regulation, digestion, elimination. I mean, the freaking thing's very wired together. And part of growing spiritually is getting first in enough contact with your body to learn to listen to it. Yep. But then to say, okay, now what's making it all work? And And this is why I study consciousness because, you know, this is a very brief summary because it's a very deep subject, but if you look at the work of people like Gene Gebser, who did extensive research in consciousness, um, or uh, um, Ken Wilber, or Dustin DiPerna, or, you know, there's a long list of them, Arthur Young, uh, you know, I've got a Jung, I've got a whole library full of these people. Um, if you go back to the developmental period of man, 
when we were at the archaic level of consciousness, then we were fused right into nature, you know. So for all intensive purposes, we functioned consciously uh, pretty much like the cells in our body function, right? They, they function without um, ego. They're, they're a process. Um, uh, you know, like a salmon doesn't need um, uh, an iPhone to figure out what direction to swim to spawn. It just knows because it's inherently part of nature. So when we see the salmon swimming upstream, we label it and say that salmon's swimming upstream it's spawning, or we say it's going northeast by so many degrees, and some scientist says he's moving at an average of four miles an hour upstream or whatever. But the salmon is salmoning. It's not got any of these ideas in its head. It's totally being driven by its urge, just like the sex urge or the urge for shelter or a mother's urge to nest when she's pregnant. So at the archaic level of consciousness, which is the most ancient level, we were really just a complete um, product of nature that was naturing without any conscious awareness that it could do things any differently or, you know, take shortcuts. Like, you know, imagine the salmon said, well, shit, if I just had a helicopter, I could get this over a lot quicker, right? Well, that takes a hell of a lot of consciousness to even think a thought like that. So when you look at that level of consciousness, that basically wires right into the enteric nervous system. That's what it's functioning at. It's functioning at the archaic level of consciousness. And when you look at the um, creatures in the earth, like earthworms or snakes, they're very much like our intestinal tract. And they're moving along and doing the things they do and earthworms not sitting there going, wow, I'm really disappointed at the menu today, right? Someone gave me some shitty dirt. It's just going in one end and out the other and that's what it does. And it's got peristalsis that's driven as a product of its, its uh, structural creation and its energetic creation. But then you evolve to the magic level and one of the ways they've tracked all this is by looking at artifacts and art created by human beings found in archaeological digs and when you get to the um, magic level of consciousness something interesting happens they find rock paintings and I've got whole books on rock arts and cave paintings over there um, and the rocks art symbolism and you find pictures of human beings with no mouths because that back then they didn't really have any kind of formal language to speak and so what was very important for survival was listening so the ear was the kind of key mode of consciousness was to hear what was going on around you <laughs> and to hear the sounds that your you know whoever you were with made like the sounds of joy, like eating something when you're hungry or the sounds of pain or the sounds of fear or the sounds of, you know, um, an animal coming toward you or whatever. So the point, you, you see that the consciousness now starts putting its orientation toward the ear and the nose was probably very involved at the archaic level of consciousness because the, if you study the cranial nerves, you'll find that the... Um, 
olfactory nerve is the only nerve in the human brain that's monosynaptic, which means when you smell something, it only goes through one synaptic junction and that information's in your brain. No other system in your body is monosynaptic like that, which means based on neuroscience, smell is damn important to survival. So you could say that at the very lowest level of our consciousness, we're wired to our guts and our sense of smell because those two would have been essential for survival. Then as we evolved, we realized that we had to be very aware of the sounds around us. Then when we got to the mythic level of consciousness, all of a sudden artistic renderings and cave paintings and, and scratchings into rock started showing mouths. And then we have the beginnings of what is called oral tradition and the beginnings of language, actual structure and language, you know, uh, the Polynesian language versus the, you know, Germanic languages or the Asian languages. And so the mouth starts becoming a feature. So then we start paying attention to the sounds that we're making. Um, so then you, 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 we've talked about the archaic, we've talked about the magic, we've talked about the mythic. So then when you get to the mental structure, which is really where we're kind of like at the end of the mental structure now, because if we, if we don't get out of the mental structure, we're going to destroy ourselves. Because the mental structure tends to cut itself off from everything below it, right? So you believe that some sports bar is good for you, and the next thing you know, you're eating them all the time, and you can't figure out why you're sick because you're eating such good sports bars because <laughs> the ads say they're good, right? So at the mental level, ideas are, are the critical thing, but then the eye becomes very important. And research shows that even before we have language, we're processing inner images. Even in the fetus, some researchers say that children are actually picking up images. Touch is the first sense, right? Uh, it, it's the first sense if you, if you look at it from a physical perspective, but I'm talking about the, the process inside the creature, inside the neonate. In other hmm. words, um, what I'm saying is that before we have language, we have inner vision. We are actually processing images. Hmm. And I've got, you know, in art therapy, I study art therapy, and I, I've got uh, books showing the first things that kids draw and what, as their stages of consciousness grow, what, how do those shapes change? For example, they start making squiggly lines and they start putting things more into parallels and they start, eventually they start drawing circles and then they start drawing shapes. But they also find that when you look at people that are, have been brain injured and you ask them to draw, they draw the same kinds of images that neo, or young children like, you know, maybe a one-year-old draws depending on how, where their brain injury is and how bad it is, but you see that they've actually regressed backwards in conscious development, and you can see it in the art that they draw, which is why art therapy can be diagnostic for a lot of different conditions. <laughs> but the point that I'm making is, is when you get to the mental level of consciousness, the eye becomes the feature, but it's not necessarily the physical eyes. Yes, we see our ideas, like we see cars, we see tools that we make, but it's the inner eye because the third eye is what you have insight with. So when we think, is that a good idea? You know, how many times do we say someone's trying to get you to buy something and you say, I need to think about that. Well, it means I'm looking inside to sort of weigh out all the information inside of me. 
typically not inside the body, but you just keep looking inside the brain and, and well, replaying. it's not even the brain because the brain's just a two-way radio that picks up mind. Mind is a field of action, right? If you look at Larry Dossie's book, which I have over there, One Mind, it gives you and many others, Dean Radin and God, I got a hundred books on that. Um, the mind is not in the body. The mind is a field that the body is actually in, just like a corks in water, right? So your brain, just think of your brain like a cork in an ocean. Think of the ocean like the field of mind. Your perception is that the mind is in your brain because that's where you're sending and receiving and exchanging information with it. But your brain is just that which is sending and receiving the information. So is your DNA. Your entire body is an antenna system, every part of it. And that's one of the teachings that the science of yoga gave us is the understanding that changing the position of the antenna changes the frequencies that we receive, which changes the emotions and the thoughts that we experience, which is why anybody standing, we all look at someone and know if they're standing like they're happy or they're sad. Yep. Well, we know from our own experience, if you put yourself in that posture, you don't tune into God, I'm feeling good today emotions you tune into poor me <laughs> my life sucks because that's the frequencies there and we can see animals with postural expression of emotion as well um, but the point that i'm making is you see that at different levels of consciousness we have more awareness of a greater stratification of of energy and information when you're an earthworm, you're only aware of so much. In other words, archaic consciousness. When you're a plant, you have awareness of certain things, but you don't have the kind of awareness that an animal does or a human does. You, you might have other skills that we've lost but could still have access to. For example, if you look at Tuning Into Nature by Philip Callahan, he shows you scientifically, he did research and proved plants can move forward and backwards in time. They can tell what the weather is going to be days and days in advance and they can move backwards in time which we would call memory and he showed this using very comprehensive analysis on plants and scientific instrumentation and, and mathematical calculations and it's right in his book i think tuning into nature my only point is is that we have all these levels of abilities in us but it's only through the challenges that we go through and the life experience that we go through that we have any reason to look into those levels and that's what healing's all about. That's what shaking medicine's all about, releasing the built-up energy of trauma. Um, so what I've just done is sort of taken a, an expanded way of telling you that there's really no way you could have a uh, person that doesn't have in other words, you can't have um, a postural change without some kind of mental-emotional correlate. And when you look at the science of language, research shows that 55% of language is nonverbal. Yeah, Albert Moravian. You know, there's probably a variety of sources from that. But the reality of it is, is that we're actually watching a person more than we're listening to them because we're getting more information and how many times have you asked somebody, how you doing today? And they said, oh, I'm doing great. Thank you. Right. You know, you know right away they're just bullshitting you. And you're like, good, I don't have to get involved now. Thanks. I'll keep moving. But if you were going to hire somebody like that for a job and you level, felt that level of inauthenticity, well, you probably wouldn't want to hire that person because you'd get the same kind of behavior on the job and you'd never really know what the hell was going on. Um, 
Now, caveats to that, somebody could have a possession. So at that point, you don't know whose posture you're looking at. Right. And you don't know who you're responding to. And I've worked with plenty of people with possessions, and I've seen these things myself. I've seen wild things. Um, somebody that's traumatized, uh, who who has soul loss, and and maybe has gone through so much pain of loss, like maybe a mother whose children got killed in a car accident, and she just cannot bear the pain of being in her heart. So she, if you can't access every part of your body is an antenna system and your emotions really are of, and I talked about this in my podcast, um, Evolve Yourself Emotionally, you're, you don't just, you have more than one kind of emotions. You have the biochemistry of emotions or the biology of emotions, which goes right down to the single cell wanting to move toward food or pleasure and away from pain. And every one of our cells is wired to that reality. I mean, all I got to do is hold a lighter up to you. And even if your mind thinks it's a tough guy, your cells will say, hey, dipshit, you better move your arm before we all die down here. And you got a big hole in your arm. So there's the biochemical level, which is wired also into our instinctual level, which goes back to archaic and magic levels of consciousness. But then we also have values. And in the Jungian system, values are the real key driver of emotion. In, in other words, if you told Jung you were upset about something, he would say, well, what happened? And you might say, well, I was in the store trying to buy some lunch and I was standing in line for 10 minutes and some guy just cut right in front of me right when it was my turn and that's why I'm so late because I had to wait in line and this guy cut me off and he had a big load of groceries, whatever. So you're really pissed off at this guy. Yes. So, so what you find is that he's got the emotion of anger, but in reality, if you track the anger back, he wouldn't have it if somebody hadn't cut in front of him in line. And when you say, well, what's the big deal of being cut in front of him in line? He says, well, in our culture here in the United States, you take your, wait your turn. And if, if someone's in line in front of you, you got to go behind them. But what do you find out? In Asian cultures, that's not the case. It's first come, first serve. Whoever, all you got to do is watch on, on picture, f film footage of peepers loading subway trams and stuff like that in China or Japan. Just huddle around. And it's like a rugby scrum, man. It's just yeah. whoever gets in there first gets in. Whoever doesn't get in, fuck, that's your problem. Yeah. So when they come over here, they rugby scrum the line, but people are right fucking pissed <laughs> off at them. And so what you see is there's a value trespass and the values based on cultural conditioning. So Jung showed that our sense of feeling, our conscious function of feeling is driven largely by values, our perceptible values or, or unconscious values because you know, many atheists think they're not Christian, but you're raised in the United States, your entire culture is Christian. So it's kind of like um, a sheep saying um, it doesn't love grass but has been raised in the field eating grass its whole life. In other words, it thinks it's not a Christian, like a sheep thinks it doesn't love grass, but it's been eating grass its whole life. And if you're living in the United States, for example, or England or any of the Christian lands, your banking system's Christian, your road names are Christian, your holidays are Christian. I mean, the, you can find Christianity infused like water soaks a sponge. So a person may not, think they're a Christian, but they're Christianized, and that's enculturation. Hmm. 
we got to wrap this thing up. And all of those things show up as emotions and postures because a lot of that stuff's driven at the unconscious level, most of it. Thanks for doing this, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hope it was what you wanted to hear. Of course. <laughs> I, like, I like just going into, I feel like a, like a, a, a six-year-old kid, you know, just going into asking why. Well, that's why I do it. I mean, because uh, I don't like I don't like other people telling me why. Yeah. If I haven't one done the work to figure it out myself, now there's a difference. If I'm asking William A. Tiller, why does light move twice the speed of light according to Einsteinian philosophy at the second chakra, and maybe four or five times the speed of light at other chakras. I don't have the mathematical skills or the physics skills to figure that out. And I don't want to go to school for 20 years to find the answer to that question. So then you have to choose your expert carefully. And, right. and then I, I just meditate on it and ask my soul, is Dr. Tiller's answer correct according to, you know, the soul, you know, for me is the consciousness of the universe within me. So if I get a yes there, I'm good to go. You know Eugene Gendlin, that focusing technique have you ever heard of that before uh, so i just finished a book about it and it just gets into practices on how people can start to really think more with their body and and there he calls it the felt sense mm-hmm. and so getting into that that felt sense as opposed to just stirring within those kind of that thin layer of thoughts yeah most of us occupy that that really superficial layer and don't really even touch into that that deeper felt sense well that's largely the ego layer yeah you know remember the ego is only about five percent of your consciousness so it's not much it's you know uh, i think 15 something like 12 to 15 percent of an iceberg is what you see sticking out of the water right well imagine that 95 percent of the iceberg of our consciousness is underwater which means it's unconscious yeah so what a, and this is part of the problem reason we have so much mental emotional illness today is because people are so oriented toward that 5% that they're really unconscious about what's really driving their behaviors or their addiction to uh, food or to sex or to position or to power or to you know making their bodies look a certain way and uh you know ultimately um I think the body is is you know, uh, it's it's like a mansion with with many many rooms in it. And um, if you look at the chakra system, it's like the floors in the mansion. But the crown chakra, paradoxically, is the doorway out of this dimension of reality. So when you die, you go out through the crown, and what happens? You go up an octave. And the same way, you know, I can blow a dog whistle in this room, and you won't hear a damn thing. But if there's a dog nearby, it'll hear it for sure because it's got a capacity to hear frequencies that are much higher than the human ear. So when we go out of the range of the seven chakras, it's not that we're dead. It's just that we're in another dimension that the human sensory system can't access unless you are spiritually evolved. And that's what a shaman is. That's someone who can climb above that ladder and says, okay, I can go to the eighth ninth, tenth, and depending on the model you use, you know, in some books on the Hindu chakra system, which I've studied, um, they say every chakra is, has seven dimensions to the power of seven. 
and every one of those dimensions has seven chakras in it to the power of seven, and that goes on forever. In other words, your root chakra isn't just your root chakra. It's expressing itself through this safety and security around sex, safety and security around personal power, self-will, safety and security around love, safety and security around creating and communication, safety and security around what you see inside yourself, safety and security about what you think about death. So there's seven dimensions in one chakra. But if you go to any one of those, they say there's seven dimensions there. And if you go into any one of those, there's another seven. They say this goes on infinitely. <laughs> and, and so a shaman is someone that just goes climbing around on that lattice and spends enough time climbing around in the areas where most people have problems. So they begin to recognize, okay, issues around sexual guilt and shame usually hover around these dimensions. Yeah. Right. And so they know how to access them and see the part of you that you can't see just because they're a lot more conscious than you are. Yeah. We, um, we really do need to wrap up because you probably got stuff you got to do, but they, I, I heard a friend recently talking about his experience with death and he was like clinically dead for a while. I don't remember. He didn't, he didn't know how long it was exactly, but he said during that time frame he had an experience where he was able to access all of his life in a single instant. So as opposed to being on that linear plane, yeah. it was, it was, it was on this matrix that you can pull in any, any instant you could grab mm -hmm. the whole thing in one, in one spot. Yeah. And it seems like within that, it's like, Oh, like exponential sevens. That sounds impossible. It's like, well, that's from this linear plane. It is. Yeah. But then perhaps there's other ways of perception where all of a sudden it doesn't become so impossible. Well, that's one of the meanings of the cross, right? Most people don't realize the cross is a far older symbol in Christianity. I mean, I've got books on symbols going deep into the cross. But, you know, Steiner, for example, describes that the vertical element of the cross below the horizontal beam represents our evolution through the plant kingdom, which is archaic consciousness. Above the horizontal beam, that represents the vertical axis, which is all possible dimensions in which consciousness can go, but it's in the now. It's not, there's no past, present, or future there. The horizontal beam of the cross represents the animal spine. It's horizontal to the ground, with rare exceptions. The, the, the human part of the cross is the part that's above the horizontal beam, because that's where your neck and head are, and your head gives you access to every dimension. If you go deep enough into meditation, you go out of past, present, and future reality into now. And in now, everything's accessible, <laughs> right? So really, what the cross is saying is that the vertical is the subtle, the invisible, intangible, non-local reality, but the horizontal which is what the crucifixion means, you will be stuck in a body. You will live in time is the horizontal beam. And so the, if you're looking at a cross in front of you, the left side is the past, where the two beams intersect is now, the present, and the right side represents the future. So at that horizontal level, we're always dealing with linear consciousness, and Itzhak Bentov's research on meditation showed, and he even used diagrams looking just like that, and he says, as you go deeper and deeper into meditation, your consciousness goes closer and closer to the vertical axis. Hmm. And when you hit the vertical axis in deep meditation, there is no I anymore. 
there is no we, there is no thou. You're in a non-dual relationship with the flow of energy and information that, that is a priori to existence itself. In other words, it's the creative source from which all emerges. In Zen, they would call that uh, prajna or, or pure awareness. But there is no time there. There's no I there. There's no identity there. In fact, my experience is there. There is no thing there. There's just no one. There's nothing there. Right. But there is just paradoxically, there's this, um, I was going to say intense, but it's not really the right word because intense, like a bright light, it can be intense on your eyes. It's, um, there's not a word I've ever seen in the English language to describe it, but there is a, a sense of consciousness and presence that is beyond that which can be labeled, yeah. but somehow permeates everything like quarks can move through mountains like they don't even exist. That really, I think, is the source of the self in capital le letters, all S-E-L-F, all capital, right? It, that's the source of being itself. But paradoxically, it's non-being. Being doesn't exist until there's somebody being. But you can't have being and awareness without that level of consciousness because you wouldn't know that you were being. And this is Wu Chi and Tai Chi. Wu Chi, Chi means life force, so Wu means not. Behind Tai Chi, if you see the Tai Chi symbol with a dotted circle around it, behind Tai Chi is Wu Chi, which means not life or non-being. And in the Tai Chi symbol is life itself because you can't have life without inhalation, exhalation, night and dark and all the complementary opposites because life is a flow of energy and information. So behind her, there is no flow of energy and information. It's something very, very paradoxical. But... The strange thing is, is that non-being, that non-reality is the basis of what we think of as self-existence, reality, or all that is. And it's, well, it's not even alive or dead. Like It's another thing. Those concepts don't even work there. And I haven't been to that place on psychedelic medicines, which is a very interesting thing because having done probably 400 journeys in my career and very deep ones and went high doses, I have never, I've had many states of complete unification with all that is, the universe, but only through Tai Chi was I actually able to get to that deep place of... Um, of which I'm describing, I can't describe. But, it, but I, in the best description I can see for it in my studies of Taoist philosophy or Chinese philosophy is Wu Qi. Maybe there wasn't, because there wasn't a, I don't know if the right analogy is, there wasn't a passenger in the vehicle. You know, it's just your pure, eh, never mind. I'm wondering if perhaps there's like, like in, in Vipassana meditation, they say like, don't use any mantras, don't use psychedelics, don't use any, like, it's just, just just this vehicle you know anything yeah. else just kind of scrambles it and you have to kind of at some point put that down mm -hmm. you know so perhaps something like that is like it's cleaner in a way yeah uh i don't 
No, I think that um, I'd have to really meditate on how to describe that. Yeah. But this fly is begging the guy. <laughs> I'd have to meditate on how to describe that because you're going into non-dual realities. Um, I have had non-dual experiences on psychedelics. I, I not even knowing if I was alive or dead. Yeah. But somehow. I had self-awareness. Uh, that's all I can say. I I knew that I was in the experience, and I I knew, you know, I've I've been many times where I'm like, I've got to figure out how to get back to my body because right. I am like so far away from my body and my perception. I don't know if it's breathing. I don't, you know, like, and and it can be very scary when you figure that out. And I've, you know. I've seen <laughs> I've I've seen people die in journeys so I know and I've had to do CPR to bring people back because they were that far out and they didn't even know they had a body anymore. Mm. But they were probably at peace with leaving it. Well, every, pretty much every time they got upset when I brought them back and said yeah. why did You're you like, do I that? I was almost there, I, man. I, I, no, they were there. There's, I didn't want to be back on earth. I'm like, well, yeah. you have a wife, you got kids and um how do I explain that that you just said to me you didn't want to be back well that doesn't go over very well at the end of the day and that's not what i'm here to do i'm here to help you live your life better not sneak out of it <laughs> that's my job to bring you back um yeah no this is a this is something i'd have to really meditate on for a while to figure it out because i have thought about it a thousand times but the problem is is it's a language barrier there isn't a yep. Zen master would, would have something to say about that, but he'd probably just do something silly like cluck like a chicken or say, um, you, know, you know, something just would be totally nonsensical. Right. But he would know exactly what he was saying, and he would say, no, go figure it out. That's what a koan is. It's designed to completely head fuck you, so you cannot figure it out. And the more you try, the more it fucks you up. So you have to go into that same... You have to go to the same place I'm talking about to figure it out. And if you can't get there, you can't figure it out. So they set this little trap for you that works your your um, intellectual mind into complete exhaustion. Tires it out, yeah. Burns it out, yeah. Right. Well, thank you, man. Yeah. I appreciate your whole journey and, and bringing it into this little package called called podcast. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, is, is this a podcast? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Where, where should people go from here? Where, where want to learn more? What's the best direction to point people? Well, uh, you know, my my institute is is loaded with all sorts of every aspect of it, from you know the very physical, you know, check exercise coach is their first certification program at that level. Um, and then we've got the holistic lifestyle coach program. And I go quite deep into these concepts because these are the things you have to understand to coach people through life challenges. If you don't understand belief systems and you don't understand the mind and you don't have tools for working with emotions, then you can't really help people. So that's the holistic lifestyle coaching program. And then the check four quadrant coaching mastery program is also available. The first part of it's up online and we're working on the rest of it. Um, so chekinstitute.com, but I get into all sorts of stuff like this in my podcast, Living 4D, Living 4D, four, number four, capital D, with Paul Check, and that's at uh, chekinstitute.com forward slash podcast, right at the homepage, you'll see a, a podcast tab there. 
And then my blog is Paul, C-H-E-K-S, blog.com, paulchecksblog.com. And my YouTube channel is youtube.com forward slash paulchecklive. And there's a lot of deep discussions on there too. I'm looking at things like time and consciousness. And I mean, I got everything on. There's over 500 videos from, you know, Swiss ball exercises to how to deal with uh, plantar fasciitis to uh, issues of God, sex, uh, abortion, whatever, you know. The things that people constantly get get themselves confused about or in trouble with, so I try to cover it all to the best of my ability. <laughs> cool, man. Um, well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, I'll see you guys later. Wrap this thing up. Hope you guys dug that conversation with Paul. One of the main focuses of his whole life, his career, has been movement and the way that affects the way we think and the way we feel. Um, I wanted to present y'all with the opportunity to check out the Align Method online program, which gets into exactly that. And it's absolutely free for the first week. So you can jump over to alignpodcast.com, A-L-I-G-M-Podcast.com slash Align Method. And you can begin the six-week program that gets into all things lifestyle, self-care, movement, and how to align your parts in any daily situation. I'm super excited and proud to bring that to you guys. And uh, it also includes the Align Band, which is a heavy-duty door anchor, uh, resistance band, and its own online program on how to use that thing. So looking forward to you guys checking it out. If you have any questions or comments, hit me up at Align Podcast on the Instagram and um, I'm really excited for you guys to check out the program. All right, enjoy your life. Bye.